This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. If you're enjoying the ideas and inspiration from the wide variety of guests and their experiences from the last five seasons of this podcast, just know that the best way to take the next step and deepen your knowledge in order to apply the skills and learning to regenerate your world is to read a book. New Society Publishers' vision is to provide the world with fundamental tools to help build a just and ecologically sustainable society, and many of the guests that I've interviewed here on the show are authors published by them. You can find all of their work in ebook, audiobook, and classic paperback at newsociety.org. Hey there, and welcome back, everyone, to another episode on this ongoing series on tree planting and agroforestry. So far, we've taken a broad look at many types of reforestation and how to integrate trees and woody species into farming systems. But there's another side of the coin in this conversation. Today, we're going to start another two-part session focusing on the management of woody perennials, specifically the practice of coppicing. Now, in order to get a better understanding of this ancient woodland management system, I reached out to Mark Krawcheck, the author of the new book, Coppice Agroforestry. Tending Trees for Product, Profit, and Woodland Ecology. Mark is an applied ecologist, educator, and grower, incorporating the practices of permaculture design, agroforestry, natural building, traditional woodworking, and small-scale forestry. He owns and operates Keyline Vermont LLC, providing farmers, homeowners, and homesteaders with education, design, and consulting services. He and his wife also manage Valley Clay Plain Forest Farm, which is 52 acres of field and forest in New Haven, Vermont. Now, despite the focus on coppice agroforestry systems that this conversation will revolve around, Mark and I also go into a wide array of other topics, including the long history of forest management in indigenous cultures around the world, understanding invasive species, woodland products and small craft economies, fire mitigation strategies, and a whole lot more. Now, since the conversation spanned an hour and a half, I split it into two parts so that it's not too much of a marathon to get through all in one go. And another bonus that comes along with this episode is that thanks to New Society, the publishers of this book, I'll be offering a free volume of coppice agroforestry to listeners of this show. So be sure to stay tuned till the end of this episode where I'll let you know how you can win your very own copy. Now, with all of that out of the way, I will hand things over to Mark Krawcheck. Mark, let's let's take it from the beginning. I am really interested in knowing how you first gained interest in forestry management, coppice agroforestry, and working in woodlands in general. What was your entry into all of this? It it like many of us, it was not a linear path by any stretch. So um, I, I grew up in the suburbs outside Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and had a very, you know, wholesome and full and loving upbringing. But I wasn't really thinking more holistically about my life and the impacts on people and places around the world. Um, I wasn't really at all pondering what it took for me to just sustain my day to day life. And you know, had no practical skills for the most part that would enable me to be more resilient in meeting those needs on my own. So um, I went to college in Vermont and got introduced to the field of environmental studies through a few friends that were taking courses. And 
It was largely like the litany of the ways humans are undermining our life support systems that, you know, they kind of started the program off with. And it was very disempowering for a lot of my classmates. But for me, it was very exciting to realize how much opportunity there was to just do better. And so I was really lucky because it was a fairly uh, interdisciplinary, like holistic program. And, and there were classes like living self-sufficiently. And there was actually like a permaculture class. This is back in the late 90s. Um, holistic management, which I missed by um, one of the professors there who brought in a lot of, you know, more ecological thinking to um, the, you know, the, the way he taught plant and soil sciences. So essentially, I got introduced to the back to the land movement and this idea of reskilling. And I'm kind of chronicling my, my brief path in permaculture, which is what ultimately led me to some of these other facets of that. Um, but I got to spend some time in a, a few different in intentional communities, Oroville in Southeast India being one that was very formative for me, my um, kind of late teens. And, and that's where I started to learn about this idea of just using design as a tool to create the future that we want and to be, you know, beneficial forces in, in our landscapes and communities. So from there, it was like, okay, here's all these things I want to learn, all these skills I'd love to have. And that brought me along a path of agroforestry. I, I spent a few years apprenticing and interning with different people. And so that also kind of really helped connect me with some of these other opportunities and skill sets. Um, and that was around 2001 when I first went on that journey. It was right around then that I, I encountered Ben Law's The Woodland Way book. And so I was kind of on this path bouncing from, from mentor to mentor and um, and there was just something about that book that really captivated me. And I'd been interested in learning some woodworking skills, had very minimal experience working with wood in any, in any way. And uh, I was just really fascinated by the, the narrative that he described and the way that his life and livelihood just were really interwoven within the management of his woods. And I wrote him a letter and asked if he took apprentices and he did. So I think it was the fall of 2002. I, I went out there and spent six months working with him. And that just, you know, totally expanded my worldview in terms of the opportunities for engaging with uh, woody plants and then ways to add value. And the narrative keeps going, but that was kind of my, that was my gateway into coppicing. And, um, and then maybe to just kind of cap that off, then I returned very rejuvenated with all of this information and this vision and this experience and sort of anticipated this, but realized that there was almost no corollary or um, companions that I could connect with that kind of understood that or examples that I could you know, learn from. And um, it was kind of early in my career. So I didn't have the confidence to go out and start like designing or implementing some of these things yet for people, um, uh, you know, as a, as a consultant. So that was, that was how I got my feet wet. And then it's been, you know, 20 years of learning and practice since. And in that practice, you've got your own piece of land there in Vermont. How has this learning journey that you just described informed the way that you've started to design and develop that place? Well, it's the foundation. It's, it's basically everything. Um, I would say, you know, one of my favorite permaculture principles is that design is imagination and information intensive and being able to spend time with people who'd been able to kind of live out their vision and dreams, make lots of mistakes and have successes in different climates and um, contexts. 
being able to land in a, in a place where, you know, my goal was to set roots. Um, it just, that really helped me kind of think about the long game, um, be a bit more strategic about how I approach things. So I, I actually moved back to Vermont after traveling for about three or four years, you know, doing these kind of work trade apprenticeship um, arrangements. And my vision was within like a year or two, I was going to find a piece of land, start homesteading. I wanted to build my own house. I wanted to do it like, you know, for $50,000, all of it, everything by the land, septic, all of it, and realized that was very unrealistic. And, and I also wanted to make sure that the place I landed was the right spot. And it took me eight years before I actually decided that this was the right place. And that, that was 10 years ago now. So I've been on this property 10 years. Um, and so I would say that like all that experience is just kind of baked into both the the kind of long-term planning and then like the day-to-day -day activities for sure. Nice. Well, I think if we go any further, we should start with a proper definition about what it means to coppice as an action or what coppicing is and how it's different from, let's say, pollarding or even pruning. Absolutely. I Well, and I like that you brought pruning in because I... I feel like that's a good place to start. Like many things, it's like your definition might shift depending on the audience. So we've got a pretty high caliber um, audience here, I imagine, in terms of their general familiarity. But I feel like a great place to start is it's the most intensive way you could possibly prune a plant because essentially you've cut it to the ground. Um, coppicing really only can be done with woody plants. So we're, we're kind of limiting our palette of plants to trees and shrubs. I've had people ask if my coppicing my my salad greens when I cut them and they come back. Well, no, because yeah, but you kind of, it's the same idea. It's the idea. It's, it's the cut and come again idea. And um, it's all based on the resilience of the root system and a bank of dormant buds that enable the plant to regenerate after, after cutting. And so I would say coppicing in my mind is, is an intentional act like sprouting is something, re-sprouting is something that happens to plants when they get damaged out in nature. A windstorm happens and a, the trunk snaps off and it re-sprouts or wildlife browse on a young seedling and it sprouts. I mean, it, to a degree that is coppicing, but to me, it feels like there's a human element that that's brought into it that makes the act actually coppicing. Um, and so I'd say it's it's the the deliberate management of woody plants for the resultant sprouts that emerge after cutting, after harvest. And then there's tons of little like caveats that can follow that up. So it would be like normally done during dormancy. So where I live, I always talk about winter being the period, but perhaps where you are, it's more about the rainy versus the dry season. Um, it's ideally during the period outside of active growth when a lot of the energies in the roots, um, the leaf litter has already been deposited on the forest floor. You're going to give the plant the entire season to re regenerate after it's cut. And then the other caveat that I'll just throw out there would be, well, two more. Um, one would be not all woody plants will sprout. And again, just to be clear on terminology, um, woody plants meaning plants that make wood. And that includes trees, shrubs, and woody vines. Um, for the most part, we don't really think about woody vines as being something you coppice, although you certainly could. Um, then within that woody plant realm, we've got the conifers and the broadleaf species or evergreens and deciduous. And 
very few conifers will coppice in the true sense. Um, there's exceptions where I live, the pitch pine is one in the American Southwest, the, um, I think it's the single leaf uh, pinion pine. And um, there's a couple of others, maybe it's the one seeded juniper and the coastal redwood, the California redwood is, you know, an amazing example of a, of a conifer that'll coppice up to, you know, at up to 2000 years age. Um, so, but for the most part, most broadleaf species will sprout when you cut them. And, and then there's some exceptions where it looks like perhaps if you leave some whorls of branches, most conifers will sprout too. Is it coppicing? Not exactly, but kind of. And then the last thing I would just say to kind of round out the definition would be um, that the rotation and the products are really key to the management. And so you're going to give the plant a certain number of years to regenerate before you cut it again. And that cycle could range anywhere from just one season for something like basket willow to up to 30, 40, or maybe even 50 years for um, some of the slower growing hardwood species. Um, but not all species will coppice after that long a rotation. So long definition perhaps, but involved a little bit of explanation there. Yeah. And quickly, let's go over pilarding because that is one that is often talked about in the same conversation as coppicing as a way to manage woody plants for cut and come again. What's the key difference there? Yeah. So, and forgive me, I often say pollarding. I think the word is properly pronounced pollarding, but for some reason it doesn't roll off my tongue. So I'm going to say pollarding probably, and I'm not correcting you because I think I'm wrong, but, um, but uh, tomato, tomato. <laughs> I started kind of saying thing. it that way too. And then there's actually from people from the UK that, that I kept hearing them say this. And I'm like, what? So the word's probably from there. Maybe I'll go with that. I don't know. I, I usually say, say pollarding as well. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, I'm going to say it that way. And, you know, I'm probably wrong, but I feel okay about it. Um, so the way that, um, that we're kind of contextualizing all of these practices that I think like if, if we thought of it as like an outline, the overall heading, which was a term that emerged for Dave, Jackie and myself as we were trying to think about how to organize um, these different practices is the idea of re-sprout silviculture. Silviculture being the management and cultivation of trees. Um, it's forestry, essentially. And the idea that differentiates these practices, coppicing, pollarding, shredding, hedge laying, perhaps stump culture for Christmas trees, um, is that instead of relying on seed to regenerate a forest stand or to replace a tree after it's cut, we can just kind of leverage that sprouting capability in the plant with by bringing intention to how and when we do it. So I would say that coppicing, pollarding, like again, I said shredding, hedge laying, those would all kind of fit within that, that basket of re-sprout silviculture. And maybe people don't like that term necessarily, but it just, for me, it kind of it, it becomes kind of the umbrella under which all those things lie. And so I found pollarding to be a very nebulous concept in a lot of ways as I was really trying to explore it. When I apprenticed with Ben Law, he didn't really do much of that because he was really focused more on whole wood production. And it's not really an optimal strategy if you're looking to generate poles for fence posts or craft material, not necessarily craft materials, but the difference mainly being that instead of cutting a tree at ground level, when you coppice, when you pollard, you're doing that like out in the canopy of the tree. And so often what this involves is some pretty strategic training of the plant during its early growth, like 
by the from maybe the age of like five to 15 or maybe even beyond that you're really strategically trying to think about where are these knobs or these bowls these points of origin kind of so when we talk about coppicing the the, the stump of the tree in 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 England, they call it the stool. So if I use the term stool, that's like a single tree that's been coppiced. It's the stump that, you know, the, the sprouts originate from. It's almost like with a pollard, you have all these stools that are kind of out in space. Main reasons for that would be that you don't have to worry about wildlife or uh, livestock browsing the sprouts when they emerge because they're off the ground. And then secondly, it gives you a chance to have a little bit more kind of three-dimensional architecture to your, your agriculture. So you could be grazing livestock in the understory while you're still providing shade, all the ecosystem services trees create, and you're generating some either fodder or wood product. Um, and so essentially you're gonna have probably often multiple points of, of growth, again, that kind of function like the coppice stool that you, you repeatedly cut back to, but it takes some strategy to get to the point where the tree has been trained to that architecture. It's in some ways similar to, to training a fruit tree um, to form. And then theoretically, you kind of lock that architecture in place by repeatedly cutting back to those points of growth. Right. Yeah. That's the one that I most often see around here. They do it a lot, especially with mulberry trees. Mm -hmm. um, and coppice is something that I've just started to see more and more of as I've learned to look for it and the areas where it used to be practiced. It's really cool to get a, a spectrum of how those different management styles fit within this idea of cut and come again, uh, silviculture. All and right. So maybe one, one thing I'll just no, toss in real quick is just to say that Ultimately, what that comes back to is the severity of disturbance. So it's like you could be, then theoretically, you could be like pruning just out on the periphery of the plant, which I think is what they do with, you know, tea, like the, the tea plant um, is that, you know, training harvest right out, you know, at the twig tips. You bring it back in a little bit more and maybe it's a less severe form of pollard and you could lop off a tree at six feet and have just a single kind of lollipop pollard. Um, or you cut it all the way to the ground. And so it's really about like how extreme is that, that disturbance and where is it located? Right. Yeah, well said. So we've looked into your journey into these different woodland practices, as well as getting a clear definition about these different terms that we're talking about. Let's dig now into the cultural history of coppicing because this goes way back. And it's just something that I've started to look into like the last one, two years but I know that I've only scratched the surface. So give me a little overview about the history of this type of silvicultural management. I, yes, um, and, and I will just begin with the caveat that I feel like I've only begun to scratch the surface. Um, <laughs> and that's, there's a number of reasons why that is. One is because with the exception of, um, of, of a passable Spanish capability, I'm really limited to English language resources. And so that, automatically starts to kind of narrow the focus and breadth of the research that went into this book. Um, but I think it's probably safe to say that on every inhabited continent, humans would have leveraged the sprouting capabilities of woody plants to meet their needs. Um, I don't know of evidence of that everywhere. In the book, the first chapter is dedicated to the history of the practices of re-sprout silviculture. And there's a little bit on North America and then a bigger chunk on Europe, much of which is kind of grounded, rooted in the, the history of the UK. In my research, the earliest evidence that archaeologists have traced to 
this practice dates back about 8,000 years ago. Um, and both of these sites are located along kind of coastal waterways. Um, it's uh, modern Dublin and then uh, part of uh, Denmark, I believe. And what they discovered was a network of, of waddle weirs and waddle, W-A-T-T-L-E, waddle describes a woven framework of sticks. People might be familiar with waddle and daub as a wall creation technique or waddle fencing. So you have uprights with weavers in between. It was often done with hazel, ubiquitous throughout history as a way to both enclose livestock, but then also create, you know, partitions between fields or garden walls. Um, and then again, you know, walls often in timber frame buildings. And so you know, wood doesn't last in the archaeological record unless it's somehow preserved. And so that's why it seems that most of these sites tend to be along um, some type of waterway. So kind of buried in the, in the, um, you know, the, the soil or sand along these um, shorelines, they found this extensive network of woven uh, fishing weirs. And, and I don't fully understand the design of these, um, but I, I think essentially they were acting like big funnels that when the tide was high, the eels or fish would be kind of funneled into pools that would have been, um, they'd be kind of contained within. And then as the tide receded, they'd just be able to go and collect, you know, whatever had, had made their way in and weren't able to get back out. And why they believe this is evidence of coppice is because we're talking hundreds of thousands of stems that are, you know, very consistent in their diameter, that are really straight, very minimal side branching, because it takes, you know, hundreds or thousands of shoots to do something like this on that scale. And if you look at wild plants in nature that haven't been managed or disturbed in this sort of way, it's very likely that you're going to get irregular um, growth, that it's not perfectly straight, even though most, even most coppice shoots aren't going to be perfectly straight, but, you know, really nice and, and straight, where they're going to have side shoots or branches. And so when we, when we coppice a plant, what tends to happen is we get this flush of new growth and these sprouts that are, you know, six, eight, 10 feet tall in the first season, um, very minimal branches, often unblemished, very little damage from insects or other pests. So just the sheer volume of materials and the uniformity of those materials suggests that they had some systematized way of procuring these materials. And even that might be a bit of a stretch. It's like, was it management or was it, you know, this kind of just coincidental tending? Um, were they intentionally, did they have the compartment sort of rotational system or was it something else? You would tend to think that they would have, you know, kind of engineered a system over time, but that isn't really described. Uh, but so we see that as one like key example of the earliest origins of coppice. Another really um, fascinating story uh, originates in the Somerset levels, which is this uh, kind of intertidal zone along the southwest uh, southwestern shores of the UK. In the um, there were some really early human settlements in this area, and there were a number of hills that would occasionally become islands as the you know spring rains would inundate the the lowlands in between. And these people had developed a network of tracks of of uh, walkways that connected these little hilltop settlements over time. And again, those were preserved in the peat. 
And so that essentially, again, points to some intentional partnership with woody plants to create materials that were perfectly suited to their technology and tools at the time. I could, should I Very keep going cool. or I don't want to get too oh, deep man, into the please go. I, like all this stuff, I'm, I'm right there with you. This stuff's fascinating. So I think that, that, where I was just going to go with that is that if we step back and think about it, because we're talking in some cases like the late Stone Age, when we look at the origins of these practices, meaning that people were using stone tools and your capability, like where we live in this world now where it's not a thing to go and pick up a handsaw from the hardware store. Um, people can bring a mobile sawmill to your site. You know, you have chainsaws, we have tractors and forwarders and pickup trucks and all these very sophisticated technological tools to harvest, process, and transport wood products. But, you know, bring yourself back six, seven, 8,000 years ago, or even a thousand years ago, and much of that technology didn't even exist. Even the saw is a relatively modern invention. So the ability to harvest and process wood was much different for our ancestors. And so small diameter materials would be much more have much greater utility for most of us the ability to make lumber and you know harvest trees and transport them in order to convert them to lumber requires a lot of sophistication and so throughout much of human history the desire for pole wood was much greater than the need for timber so that's that's a big theme in all of this is just that these the we tend to call like pole wood materials that are maybe in the three to eight or 10 inch range, maybe three to eight inch diameter range. Um, and then anything smaller than that often be considered like a rod. Um, so, you know, a lot of weavers and things like that. So I like to talk about the economy of pole wood as being really critical to the relevance of coppice today, because it was essential to, you know, this, these historical examples. But for a lot of us, we don't understand how those materials necessarily kind of fit our context. And when we find opportunities to use pole wood and rods, suddenly coppicing becomes a whole lot more valuable to us. Yeah. And then going into, like you said, the context of the, the larger importance of pole wood during those times and the culture that formed out of these types of rotations and this type of practice of woodland management, can you go into how this affected people's lifestyles and even the communities that were centered around this type of production yes i am i'm a, a novice at at having like a true deep understanding of kind of the socio-political networks and organizations of people through you know prehistory into the middle ages and such but um i think it was really pivotal in in a lot of ways um to how we organized ourselves how we met our needs um so my understanding is because as as we kind of transition from this you know, more kind of hunter-gatherer or pastoralist or um, or horticulturalist, because I didn't really talk too much about the indigenous North American history. Maybe if there's a window, I can mention a few little bits about that too. Um, but there are a number of different ways that humans have, you know, met their needs through interaction with landscape. Um, but we kind of shifted from this sort of subsistence economy in these kind of prehistory and like kind of, you know, Iron Age, um, Bronze Age settlements into this more kind of organized market, emerging market economy type, uh, you know, social and and uh, and financial networks where um, most people did not own property. 
it was only in in the case of like the feudal system and in, in, in the uk it was you know the king or the landlord who actually you know held rights to the landscape and obviously though it was essential that the commoners or the villagers would be able to meet their fundamental needs and so kind of granted just as a birthright for most people was access to a commons of some sort and that may be a wooded commons where you could harvest fuel wood because it's easy to forget um today but you know we i tend to think about fuel always from a heating point of view but it also was essential for daily cooking and so fuel wood it was something that's been you know essential all year long um, for people all over the world where they don't have access to electricity or um or you know some type of fossil fuel so um, there was that element of it, just like meeting fundamental needs with fuel wood. There also might be, you know, craft or uh, income livelihood generating opportunities from harvesting wood products. And then that coupled with the needs of livestock for pasture and grazing. So some of these systems um, that began to express themselves on the landscape, like the wood pasture or the wooded common, you know, the, we tend to call it like silvo pasture today, but the, the term wood pasture in England describes this kind of two-layer system with grazing animals underneath and then a canopy of often pollarded trees because they were trying to you know make use of every possible little niche in those systems um, and what often occurred was that the the landlord was actually the the owner of the pollard the the, the tree itself the villagers may have access to the, the sprouts some of these things got you know very complex and they were kind of woven within each little network um and then they would the, the the commoners or villagers would also be able to graze their animals in the understory and forage and collect but a lot of these these practices were kind of baked into just the ways people organized one another similarly another really common practice through history kind of the mainstay of forestry i think throughout much of europe you know through the middle ages was the the coppice with standard system which is essentially like a two-layer coppice system where you have standard trees that were left uncut allowed to grow to full diameter and harvested for lumber at usually 70 to 120 or so years they were usually chosen because they made some type of food stuff for livestock or wildlife so often you know beech chestnut and oaks were the most common um, standard trees. And they would generally be at densities of maybe one to 10 per acre. So I, when I think of like 10 trees per acre, I'm thinking if they were in a perfect grid, that'd be like about a 65 foot space between each tree, you know, if they were on center, just to give some context for that. Um, also, apologies to metric literate people. I can sometimes go there, but, um, it's easier because the numbers are in my head in Imperial, but um, it's like 30 meters in between. Yeah. One day we'll catch up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And so standard trees generally were the, the property of the landlord, but the commoners would have had access to the underwood or the coppice sprouts. And so that was another kind of way that these, these overlaid rights were, you know, kind of nested within this larger uh, matrix of social structure. Um, and, and so that, that coppice wood was really kind of essential to people being able to meet their needs, despite the fact that they really owned very little, if anything, they just had these kind of, again, kind of birthrights to um, resources. 
for folks that want to dive into this in, in a bit more of a narrative way, there's a book that came out a few years ago called Sproutlands. Um, I believe it's William Bryant Logan. And he explores some of the stories that are uh, also included in coppice agroforestry, um, but then also travels to other parts of the world where he gets into some of these practices in Asia, in South America, I believe in Africa as well. Um, and just paints a little bit more of a comprehensive image of how sprouts played pivotal roles in the lives of humans around the world throughout history. Um, and then maybe just contrasting the European story a little bit with the limited information I have about North America. Um, and I'm, when I talk about North America, I'm really just talking about like the Western states um, because there's a, a fantastic book called Tending the Wild by M. Cat Anderson that is largely you know, an ethnobotanical and anthropological look at the land use traditions of indigenous Californians. And what we see there is this intimate relationship between people and landscape. And she describes these traditions as being one of, a, of people that are horticultural or horticulturalists, as opposed to the, you know, we often tend to see this interaction with landscape as a binary thing. They're either hunter-gatherers or they're pastoralists or, you know, nomadic. And in this case, the, the idea of the horticulturalist really speaks to this heightened level of understanding and, and reciprocity in the relationship. It wasn't like there was a kind of just coincidental movement and migration of people. It was very intentional that people were sculpting the landscape and in turn, their populations were being shaped and sculpted by the landscape. And so the practices of, you know, sowing of intentional harvest of like uh, of crops that have, you know, tubers or corms or bulbs that could be become propagules for expanding those plant populations. Um, and especially the use of fire as a management tool to stimulate sprouting um, and also just kind of create a diverse landscape um, were really essential to their life ways. And, um, and so it's kind of a different avenue in some ways to get to coppicing and also a very different way of arranging themselves uh, socially. But, um, but we see again that that practice is really essential. And for many people, it was because the first and foremost, in addition to fuel, but it was the need for products to carry items in and store stuff. So the need for baskets has been really central to most cultures around the world. And, you know, we find varying forms of baskets and, and you know, you, I'd have to imagine almost anywhere that people had materials that they could weave with. Um, coppicing is pretty much the best way to do it. And it's one of the few still uh, relatively common examples of coppicing in the region where I live, because if you want to make baskets using, you know, woven kind of wicker techniques, you can't get better materials than if you were to coppice the uh the the stools in order to do that yeah it's like you were talking about the uniformity that comes of doing that and understanding those rotations and there's so much that you were talking about there that brought up uh some associations and some recent learning i've had from my own travels and such because i've lived in communities like in guatemala where firewood is the primary fuel source for cooking as well and mm -hmm it's often a task that falls to women to go up to the woods and their management techniques uh, are really informed the landscape, especially in the, in the mountains where I live. And then also the associations that I've come to understand between 
the indigenous origins of like slash and burn agriculture, which generally has a very poor association for how it is managed at the moment, but how it comes from uh, maybe 40 to 100 year rotation in tropical forests, where a single area within the forest was essentially reset, uh, both with the hardwoods that were managed for timber and for fuel, and also the, fo uh, the, the food and the medicine sources that came from that as well, and maybe managed for a couple of seasons with more intensive annual production, but at the same time planting the seeds for the perennials that would later take over and managing them at each stage of their life in these very large area long-term rotations that could only have uh, influenced the culture and the patterns of living that they had. And then also seeing, since I've recently moved to Europe, how those are baked into the history of the different autonomous communities that I've seen and started to learn about. Like, for example, where I am here in Catalonia, Northeastern Spain, a lot of the traditions and the history or the folklore of this area is tied into what we would consider like pagan uh, originated ideas, which are all having to do with uh, spirits and uh, harvest cycles and rotations in the ecosystem and the pattern of the forest, which is what this place really was for such a long time. Mm -hmm. And yeah, just there, there's so many different connections. If you go far back enough, almost all cultures and worldviews originated with at least a much closer, if not uh, fundamental connection to woodlands, even if they were something that might have been on the periphery, like they were early to agriculture or something, but many of them very much integrated. You think of, you know, uh, Druid traditions and cultures in the islands in the further north or Celtic, as we have here in, in Spain as well. Um, and even in the Mediterranean, especially with how closely things like uh, grapes and olives and almonds and these other food sources around these kind of more arid coastal areas have informed just the fabric of how people have lived here for two, three, four thousand years. It's, it's, it's so cool to see how this is actually connected with healthy integral management of the ecosystems, mostly of which perennial and, and tree-based ecologies were, were managed. It's, it's mm -hmm. something that I, I continually get excited about and keep going deeper as I see different places around the world and the histories uh, that have emerged into the cultures that, that we have today. Now, you also alluded to talking a little bit more about how North American uh, indigenous peoples started, or the, the little that you know of their management techniques with coppice and, and forestry management. Um, do you want to talk about that? Because it per works perfectly into the segue about colonization and how and why coppice management hasn't become more of a thing in modern culture. Yeah. Um, well, one thing I just wanted to pick up on, too, that I'm glad you brought up is just kind of the corollary with the slash and burn agriculture, which, again, in my yeah, experience, cool. often felt that um, was was spoken of in a disparaging way as something that was you know destructive to the landscape and was you know inappropriate management or um, undermining ecological health. Whereas like one way that I've described just traditional coppice systems in their kind of rotational expression is, is very much like rotational grazing, where it's this like intentional, targeted, intense disturbance with a long recovery period. And that theme there is all about like rejuvenating disturbance. The disturbance 
can be debilitating or disturbance can be like invigorating and 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 health enriching and that I think we tend even even the idea of like a clear cut in forestry, you know, so much of it's about context and scale and how we apply it with intention. And, you know, we see that that kind of periodicity of management expressed in, you know, all of these different people's ways of engagement. Um, my knowledge of of these practices in North America, again, is really limited to the narratives that Kat Anderson shares in Tending the Wild. Um, I found little snippets of of information in a few other books, um, partly because of my understanding is partly it's because of the the legacy of colonization and the impact that Europeans had on indigenous populations out in the eastern parts of the continent where populations were you know decimated very early on and um, and a lot of those traditions were you know basically kind of um, you know, extinguished from the landscape. And so there wasn't this kind of cultural mem memory, nor was there really the, the literacy among colonists to recognize that this was actually, there was sophisticated, you know, interaction, human landscape interaction that was happening when they walked through what they believed was wilderness. Now, I already spoke a little bit about, I kind of gave you what I, I have in a, in a nutshell about the California traditions. Um, which again, just to reiterate, was largely this um, kind of fluid movement of people through landscape, um, tending wild plant populations. And tending is such a great word, you know, because I I think of it as as synonymous in some ways to management, but it also connotes this conversation or this reciprocity that's kind of embedded in it. Management has a much more kind of heavy-handed uh, implication, whereas tending seems that there's care and 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 a conversation that's kind of built into that um but you know fire being the primary tool the most effective tool for for uh, manipulating landscapes or resetting succession um and so as we see this kind of wave of colonization begin to like make its way across the north american continent um both coupled with the fact that again there probably was very little appreciation for the nuance of the practices that were that were you know key to, to creating these landscapes i have a hard time knowing fully if if coppicing didn't really exist or it just wasn't that necessary um as europeans began to kind of make their mark on this landscape because coppicing happens whether you want it to or not like for a lot of people not unlike what you were describing before it's like most of us have seen, you know, hundreds or thousands of coppice stools in our lifetime because they're all over the place. They're on the edges of vacant lots or they're along railroad beds or in parking lots and things like that. Um, it just, it happens, but people don't notice it. And so the, the, the need to develop this kind of systematized, um, you know, more, uh, comprehensive system was probably a lot less because there was a lot of land clearance for agriculture and there was abundant wood products for most people during those early days. And so I think it's just that we kind of lost that, those traditions of Europe because a, part, a big key to, to the migration of people from Europe to North America was resource shortages. Um, and so, you know, people stepped into this relative abundance, but it's interesting because in some of the research I did, we, there's a, a a guy from, I don't know if he was a, a forester, but um, his name is Matoon, M-A-T-T-O-O-N. And 
he writes about chestnut coppice in the early 20th century in Connecticut. And so it's like, it was happening, but a lot of times they don't even really call it coppice, you know, it's um, stump sprouts or there's, there's other terms that might be used. So it definitely was going on. It just wasn't, you know, this, this, you know, very formal compartment-based rotation system. And I think that coupled with the transformation in technology and tools, along with just the abundance of fossil energy that, you know, flooded the, the, the economies of, of that era, you know, the industrial era, um, it became a lot more practical to process larger diameter materials. And so the desire for small diameter pole wood just started to fall out of favor. It's to the point where this day and age, it's like we, we grow shiitake mushrooms here on our farm. And the materials I'm looking for, for most loggers, aren't even worth the time to harvest them because they're so small. Um, so there's just, we don't really have that lens anymore. Even what I usually like to cut for firewood is stuff most people wouldn't bother hauling out of the forest. So that, that kind of value shift along with the technology and energy, um, it seems to be the key pieces that started to, to kind of bring the demise of those practices in a lot of ways. And then the lack of that kind of cultural lineage and the, the passing on of tradition um, also played into it. And then that coupled with, and this is true in, in many parts of Europe too, but there was kind of this, um, this period of neglect starting in kind of the post-World War II area that a lot of forests had been cut or managed for you know generations. And for whatever reason, they saw very little inter interaction from you know the 1940s and 50s on. And so in my part of the world, most many forested landscapes are densely overstocked because they were probably clear cut 60, 80, 100 years ago. And no one really ever went in to do any thinning or, uh, or you know, timber stand improvement type management to, you know, kind of better distribute the, the wood resource that exists in the stand. And so we're dealing with this kind of overstocked, very competitive community that over time will figure itself out. But we kind of see the, the, the results of, of just the, that neglect playing out today. And the other big impact, which I'm going a little off script here, but um, is I think it's worth mentioning is that we're inheriting uh, a, a legacy of high-graded forests, meaning that they say um, taking the best and leaving the worst or take the best and leave the rest. And so, you know, over several generations, we've really started to undermine the genetic base in our forests by leaving the lowest value species the most, the ones that are most susceptible to disease are the slowest growing and then harvesting the highest quality stems. So there's a lot of rejuvenation and, and regeneration that's really essential to um, restoring the potential of our forested landscapes here. Thanks once again to Mark Krawcheck. I've included all the links of how to learn more about his work and the book Coppice Agroforestry in the show notes for this episode on the website. And of course, as promised, I'm also giving away a free copy of the book through New Society Publishers. All you have to do to be eligible to win is to send me a message through the Regenerative Skills Discord server, letting me know that you'd like to win a copy of the book, Coppice Agroforestry. You can find the link to join for free on the homepage at regenerativeskills.com or through our bio in our profile on Instagram. 
If you're based in the US or Canada, you can win a hard copy of the book. And if you're outside of North America, you are eligible to win a digital copy. Now the Discord server is where the conversation around the topics of these episodes comes to life. And it's also the easiest way to get in touch with me directly. So whether you're interested in helping to guide the direction and focus of the show into the future, or just get some feedback on your own projects and have some questions answered, it's all happening there. Now in the next episode on this series on tree planting and agroforestry, we'll pick back up with the second half of this conversation and explore how coppicing fits into a holistic forestry management plan, the considerations and analysis that needs to be conducted to gain insights on how to manage your own forest, as well as the myriad products that can come from woodlands, career opportunities around these practices, and a whole lot more. So be sure to subscribe to this show and leave a review wherever you stream your podcast from so you never miss an episode. Well, that wraps things up for this week's session. As always, don't forget to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.